Welcome to the Tone Duff Sessions, hosted by Bruce Duff, author of The Smell of Death, musician, producer, and artist manager. The conversations are recorded at Tone Duff Studio in Hollywood, California, and are a feature of Rare Bird Radio. All right. Hello, everyone. We are back, and uh, welcome to the Tone Duff Sessions. I'm here today with two amazing musicians, and I think we're going to have a good conversation. I'm here with Josh Hayden and Kenny Lyons. Say hello, fellas. Hello. There you go. Uh, Kenny, you can scoot in a little bit. What the heck? Uh, you know, we're on one microphone here, old-fashioned style. Um, reason I have you guys in together is because you both just worked on a, on a record uh, called Caroline. Is it Caroline or Carolina? Carolina. Okay. And that is, of course, the new one by uh, the band Spain, which has been your project since uh, the 90s, I believe. Yeah. And, uh, Kenny, you're new to the project, right? I am, yeah. All right. And I, I think, if I'm remembering all my sp Spanish history, uh, you sort of took some time off uh, from Spain for quite a while and have just kind of been putting it back together. How did you, just to start this off, how did you two guys get together and, and begin working on this album? Uh, well, I, re I recorded the previous record, Sergeant Place, and I, um, I needed a band to tour for it, and we have a mutual friend named Merlo Podlewski, who, um, was the original Spain guitarist in the 90s, um, who I've stayed friends with over the years, and, um, he's always giving me pointers and advice and um, I asked him Merlo I, I need to I need some musicians for uh, this tour in Europe coming up Merlo said you should call Kenny because I think that you guys would mesh really well together so I did and um, and then over the, the course of you know touring and getting to know Kenny and learning that he is also quite an experienced producer and engineer um, and you know has his own studio I thought it would be great to work with Kenny on the next record we, we first did a song that was a benefit song called I Do and that song came out so great that I thought um, well, I need to do the next Spain record, and Kenny said, I'll do it, and I said, great, so that's how it happened. So it grew pretty organically. Yeah. yeah. Now, you guys did everything uh, primarily at your place, or did you record the whole thing there? Everything except the drums, which we did at Danny Frankel's house in Joshua Tree. And was that, so I'm assuming then you had everything kind of done and then went there, like we were just talking about, you put it on last? Yeah. Exactly. And Danny rolled with that pretty easy? I mean, he's super pro, right? Yeah, no problems. Okay, and so how were you guys uh, actually putting together these songs? Was it uh, fairly organic, like you had the basics things down and it was your, you were coming up with ideas of different instruments to add? Because I know you play like a wide variety of things on this record. It was completely organic, really, really great, fun process. Josh would come in with a song on the acoustic guitar, which was really good because we got to have him record and play acoustic guitar, which he'd been avoiding and shouldn't have been, because he did a great job. And he, we'd record the, him, the basic track with him playing and singing, and then we'd just kind of like go to town. Okay. 
I would say I, I really hear a um, pedal steel on this song, and Kenny would say, oh, let me um, get some boxes out from under my bed, and all of a sudden there'd be a pedal steel from under his bed. Uh, well, that's pretty amazing. I, I, I know some, some steel players, and they're like, you know, if you're going to approach this instrument, set aside 10 years of your life because it's a did you find it to be that much they, of a challenge they, to learn you, those people probably play it a lot better than i do <laughs> i play i'm, I'm kind of like what you call a pedal steel owner and appreciator okay you're probably and, being modest i'll sit around and i'll figure out something and then i'll and i'll record it but i'm not would never tell a pedal steel player yeah i'm like you because <laughs> i'm not okay <laughs> still pretty difficult thing to yeah to it's master. pretty difficult to do really well it's like flamenco. Like I played flamenco guitar first, but I would never tell a real flamenco player that I'm a flamenco player because if you do that, you don't really do anything else either, you know. Right. I suppose that's true. Yeah, those are those are kind of specialty yeah. specialty jobs you got to be be zeroed in on. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your studio. Uh, there was quite a mention of it in the bio, uh, in the fact that it's in the Gaylord, which is uh, for anyone in Los Angeles. Very possibly familiar with it, a pretty famous hotel down on Wilshire Boulevard with the, uh, what's the name of the bar in the, in the, the HMS Bounty? The HMS Bounty, One of yeah. the uh, better, one of Koreatown's better uh, pirate bars, for sure. That's the studio lounge. Uh, uh, couldn't be better. <laughs> so is that the, you know, you guys take a lot of breaks down there to clear the head or yeah, fog could, the head in? Did we? I don't remember. We well, could, but we... We ate there a few times. Yeah. Food's actually decent. Yeah. You know, for a bar. Yeah, it's not bad. All right. Uh, any, uh, what, I mean, what's your setup like? Is your whole apartment sort of a studio and you find a place to put your bed or how's it work? Well, I don't really sleep there very much anymore. I, I, I stay over, you know, somewhere else, but, um, but I do have a bed there, but it's about this high up. That's why there's so many guitars and things underneath it. It, it kind of turned when I first moved back here from New York in 98 or ni eight, ni late 98. I was trying to quit music and do a writing job, and I had a writing job for a minute, and then gradually more and more stuff came in to the studio, all my instruments from other places that I'd been living, and then I started making Chicano Gangster Rap Records, because that was easy to do with a computer, and then it gradually just turned into, well, that's the main function of it, is just being a studio. And it's, you know, like this place, maybe, yeah. maybe you know, 20% bigger, but not, okay. not that different, really. And a bar six floors down. Ah, uh, that's, where, that's where I'm lacking. <laughs> right. All I can do is park. It's yeah. not quite nearly as exciting. Well, that's interesting stuff, and I, I do want to cover some of the other things involving uh, your writing, and particularly the gangster rap stuff. And another thing I found about the two of you, which I thought was interesting, uh, Josh, I know when you left Spain, uh, figuratively, that is, you did uh, a record with Dan the Automator and Kid Koala, which I, I really listened to that. I, I thought it was really interesting because... As much as those guys have a blueprint of what they do, that really sounded like a Josh Hayden record. So, I mean, what was your? How, how do you get into that? What was your? What was sort of your, the direction you were trying to uh, to take? Oh, I um, I was kind of like Kenny. At a certain point, I became so frustrated with the music business that I just couldn't continue, and I wanted to try something different, uh, which was to. Um, go back to school to get my MFA in creative writing and uh, Dan I, w I was there about six months and with no intention of returning to pl playing music and Dan called me and said 
uh, I heard you have a contract with DreamWorks. What are you going to do? You need a, to do a record? Let me produce your record for you. He reached out to you? Yeah. I see. And um, and I, I had been listening to a lot of Keith Sweat. There's a, a mm -hmm. particular Keith Sweat record that had, been that had just come out. I was listening to it a lot, and I, I really wanted to make a... If I want, if I was gonna make a record, it would be a Keith Sweat record. Okay. So, I said, Dan, I, I want to make a Keith Sweat record, and Dan said, Okay, sh send me the songs, and I have some song ideas. So we kind of combined our ideas, and the next thing I knew, I was I'd quit the MFA program, and I was in San Francisco at Dan's house recording for a month. And I mean, how much did he have a lot of stuff sort of preset? you know, beats and everything ready um, to go, and you kind of, guys just start slamming stuff onto it? I think, like, 50% of the record is Dan's beats, and the other 50% are, are ideas or beats that I brought in. Um, so, yeah, it was about 50-50. And then how does Kid Koala figure into it? Because so, um, he's friends with Dan, and he thought, Dan thought Kid Koala would sound cool on the record, which he does. And John Modeski played keyboards he actually oh, wow. came to the studio and played on like seven songs i think and how how was this received were people shocked by it like oh josh has gone haywire or did people dig it um no people i put it out on my own label so nobody know, knew about it and very few people even know about it now well that's not good <laughs> we gotta let people know about this go um, out and check it out occasionally it's i'll get an email from somebody saying i love your record devoted it's great but um that doesn't happen very often anymore. Well, you just brought up an interesting point. On one hand, you say you were kind of frustrated with the music business, which I'm sure we can all relate to as it's happened to everybody. Uh, but then you go and start a label. So uh, is that because of your frustration or do you thought that, I mean, explain that. Um, well, without getting into too many details, I just um, I couldn't find any other um, means to release the, that particular record, so I just ended up doing it myself. Did you um, release it physically as well? Yeah, I still have like 700 copies of the CDs. If any, anybody wants one, <laughs> I think that we do. <laughs> yeah, I, I would certainly be, oh, okay, be in on that. <laughs> I should have brought some. I, I didn't. I, I've, I'm kind of resigned to the fact that nobody wants CDs anymore. Yeah, that's a tough one, especially <laughs> if you got them in your garage. I, I understand the. Uh, I understand the feeling. Yeah. Uh, but y then you wonder if you know the way things are now. If you could kind of revive it by putting out 500 copies of it on vinyl. You know, yeah. it seems like distributors will take almost anything if it's limited and kind of rare, and that's and a, you got three three you know big names on it. Yeah, that's a great idea. So I want to write that down. Okay, right well, now. <laughs> <laughs> on my phone. Well, that's that's what we try to do. That here it can't always happen. Um, yeah, and so your label's called Diamond Soul, right? Yes. Now, what all you have on that? Is it you have quite a, a few things that you've put out on that? Is this this new record isn't on that, correct? It is in the U.S. It is in the U.S. Yeah. And overseas, it's Glitter House. Yeah. Okay. So what's up with the United States? They're not uh, they're not on on the ball here. What what, what kind of what kind of uh, you know a <laughs> blockage are you getting from labels in the U.S.? What what what's the uh, disconnect? Um. I, I don't know. I, I've tried to figure it out. Um, 
I think even in the 90s, our audience, while was a devoted audience in the States, just wasn't as as um, centralized as it is in Europe. So, um, uh, <clears throat> like, one of the things that I, looking back, I wish would have happened is... Um, <clears throat> Because when, in the 90s, when the first Spain record came out, The Blue Moods of Spain, um, when that came out, I, uh, I had like a million record labels wanting to, to steal my contract. Which was restless, restless, if I remember. Yeah. In, in the rush to sign us and uh, give us tour support, um, and then not have the record sell very well in the States, they, um, they should have uh, let me develop my audience in Los Angeles and just get it really strong and stable here so we could branch out mm -hmm. um, and let it grow organically. And it was almost like they were assuming we were going to be superstars when I knew that there was very little chance of that happening if if I couldn't do it my own way. So I had all these people in the record business telling me how to do things, and I could I was going against my better judgment for years, and so I think that's why. So, it was different in Europe because it caught on a lot quicker and more organically, but in the States, um, it needed a different um, viewpoint or um, perspective from which to, to start tackling the problem of how to make the project self-sufficient. And, um, you know, I, I was so young back then, I, I, I didn't know how to say no to sure. labels when they're throwing money at me. It's like, I didn't have... What's well, a tough one? I, you know, and it was so much money. It was like, and it ran out so quickly. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden it was like 2006 and my 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 um, royalty payments started getting less and less and where whereas i didn't really have to push my music so much and still be able to survive as the years went by i was like wow this isn't really working and, and so i mean do you think part of that was because it, you know when you go back to the 90s your restless records days uh you know, it was just kind of a major label thing. Let's 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 see who we can you know pilfer from the indies. That's the farm team. We'll throw them out there, and uh, you know, and I think a lot of bands got signed with that kind of attitude, and probably you know, in a boardroom, like let's sign three, one will hit. Yeah. You know, and if bands were just kind of discardable in that way, and artists like yeah. you know, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, but one will, and that'll pay us off. Yeah, and. Uh, and it's so uh, like like cutthroat and and not um, a, you know paying attention to the the peop these the people are human beings that the label is working with and you know it's 
when when you're trying when when a, an entity or a group of people are trying to make money off of art it's not like trying to make money off of gasoline or coal or, or you know metal or something if they're human beings uh, and uh, it's so like it's such a, a a tragedy in in so many cases where musicians lives were ruined by these major labels and I was thinking of like I just got an email from South by Southwest and they were okay. soliciting for panel ideas ah. and I was thinking a good panel would be getting all the musicians from the 90s who signed major labels for you know hundreds of thousands of dollars and then were just dropped and right afterwards and are now destitute or you know I remember this one guy I won't say the name of the band but I remember they were so huge in LA in the 90s and they signed a, some major label for a lot of money and it didn't pan out for them and the next thing I heard the lead singer was like a prostitute on Santa Monica Boulevard and like I would like to get him on the panel and talk about why major labels are evil, you know, and, and why we don't need them anymore, or one of, a few of the reasons we don't need them. Yeah, that, there was actually a few of those cases, and, you know, speaking to the whole major label formula, I mean, if you're going to actually hit the upper echelons of the chart, and be on, it's still a major label game. Major label puts people on the radio, radio's what, you know, the sends it up to that actual higher reaches, although a lot of us probably aren't listening to the radio that much, but it's still it's still a thing. And I think that's created what I, I've, I've been reading about this sort of recently, that the music business, mus, musicians, professional musicians have become just sort of like everyone else and that there's this 1%, literally, that makes yeah. uh, this enormous amount of the money, like 30% of all the money, and everyone else is just kind of like, slogging along in this site. It's mirroring know. the larger economy. Yeah, the, totally. The, the whole world, the class situation is definitely mirroring it, yeah. And I don't know if, I mean, everyone's talking about how this new music business model can is, is starting to come around, everyone's starting to find a way to live in it, but I, I don't know if there's a solution for that particular issue. Like, it, if you're in the middle, like back in the 90s, like you're saying, if you were in the middle class, if you're on an indie label, you could still make, a, between the budgets you were getting paid and what you're making on royalties and then going out and playing, you could kind of get by. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, I don't think that's true. No. You've probably got some kind of second job or rich girlfriend or something. Yeah, basically. Uh, you know, costs have gone up and, and wages have stayed the same for everyone in society, in, in our little corner, our big corner of society. But in the musical thing, it's that the, the output product is worth so much less and it only it only really works well at scale. Like I'm sure that somebody's making a lot of money from Spotify, but it's not going to be an indie artist who makes interesting music. I tell people that the more interesting music you make, the less likely you're going to be able to make much money from it. Yeah, you know. A friend of mine has has a label that actually had a uh, their biggest artist clicked in at a million Spotify listens. Right. That's worth four thousand bucks. They're living large. Yeah, you know, <laughs> a million. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's the new, the new major label attitude that has the attitude like that musicians are disposable sources of income and they're not even human. So yeah, you can have a million plays of your song and pay them $4,000. We'll make hundreds of thousands, if not millions, off of advertising and 
you know, and, you know, once we wear them out, we're just going to move to the next sucker who comes by and, you know, has a million plays and then decides to give up on music or, you know, drinks themselves to death or whatever. Sure. Uh, a friend of mine had this theory, and, and I think it's extremely paranoid, and I don't know if I'd go for it, but it's interesting. And he said that, like, like right around the time we were post-Nirvana, and Kurt Cobain died and all these bands were out of control on drugs and stuff, that the labels, whether they actually got together and did this, but sort of came to this conclusion, you know, fuck this rock band thing, paying all this money for videos, these guys are out there dying, they have control over the records, they turn in these weird-ass records we can't sell. Let's just shuck this whole concept, like post beat from like the Beatles to Nirvana. Let's just right. get rid of that whole role model, go back to before that, Sign pop stars, put them with the producer, burn yeah. them out, and when it's done, get the next one. They're just part of the a cog in the wheel, yeah. As opposed to like being artistes, they're just like yeah. another piece in this creation of this product that can be sold the same way that a cereal is sold or a soft drink is sold. You know. Now I don't think that's true across the board by any. No. I mean, the fact that we're all even sitting here is kind of yeah. We're, proof still, that we're it all is. still alive. But I mean, again, talking addressing that one percent up at the top, I think yeah. there's something to it. Yeah, he called it the anti-rock conspiracy, which I don't think yeah, they all yeah. got together in a boardroom. But but who knows? It'd make a great movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe yeah. maybe it's true. Uh, Kenny, since we do talk about um, books kind of a lot in here, uh, you wrote a book some like thirteen years ago, or it was probably longer than that. Yeah. Okay, I made a note of it. It's okay. I, you know, it was so in the, it was eighty eight. Excuse me, oh, yeah, almost yeah. twenty years ago. Right. And that was three monkeys. Now. It, <clears throat> I, that's just a Kindle book right now, right? Yeah, it's but it was published. At the no, time. it was never published. It was a, it was a, it was a kind of a big disaster in my life. It was one of those really, really unfortunately poorly managed things, where I, I was living in L.A. I was a musician, and but I always wanted to be a writer. I was like, my father's a writer. A lot of people in my family are scholars, and and I had worked a long time on this book, and. The agent that I had an agent, and she said you should turn it into a screenplay because I can't I can sell that a lot easier in Los Angeles because you're not in that milieu. You don't nobody knows who you are. You're some guy who plays guitar and bass and whatnot. I've heard that one by the way. Yeah, yeah. So I I I I, I she you know gave me some screenplays to copy. I'd never written a screenplay before. This is eighty eight eighty nine, and I I turned it into a screenplay and I gave it to her and she sent it around to all these places and and I got. And I, and I got this, uh, my dad gave me a call about six months later and he said his agent was the guy who was the agent for the guy from Little House on the Prairie who's now dead. He had, they had the same agent. Because my okay, dad Michael writes, Landon. From, yeah. Yeah. Oh, he writes oh. from National Geographic and he also had a book on Random House about this treasure wreck that he helped find and a bunch of stuff. My dad, Dr. Eugene Lyon, nice guy. I just saw him. And um, he said, my agent said that people were talking about your screenplay but it's a little controversial because... As one small part of the of the story, there's a virus being introduced by a rogue element, and it's basically AIDS. And back then, nobody really knew much about AIDS. So it was actually, it was a sacrosanct subject in 1988-89. So she had given it to a guy named Charles Roven and, at Universal, mm -hmm. and he passed on it. And then I moved, I, my life went on. I said, whatever, you know, I'm gonna go keep, keep at trying to get the book published. And I moved to New York, and in 94, I got uh, a phone call from this old friend of mine who'd become a 
kind of a successful independent producer in town. And she said, I'm sending you a screenplay. You got ripped off. Do you know anything about a guy named Charles Roven at Universal? And she sent me the screenplay for 12 Monkeys, and he's the guy who made it. So basically, it whatever he took or didn't take, because we had a law thing going on, and they and it turned out that I probably would have lost because they changed enough. He did a pragmatic thing. He didn't know who I was. And, you know, he hired the, the couple that wrote Blade Runner, and they rewrote it entirely, and got it was directed by, you know, Terry Gilliam. And so whether there's some parts of it that are clearly source material, but I don't think I even really had a case because of the way that works. But it was just like depressing to me. You know I can I mean? understand that. And um, they even even took the name. It just added nine monkeys to the name, you know. And my book was a lot more interesting than either my screenplay or that movie either, as far as I'm concerned. And then things started to work in music, you know. I started playing with the Lemonheads. I did that for a number of years, and I, you know things went fine the other way. And uh, and I just never got back to it. I have a couple other novels that are in very in in stages of lack of completion. But I just didn't handle it correctly, you know. That's the long story. But it seems like it was almost kind of out of your hands anyways. I mean, if someone's going to, like, back, you know, under the table, pass it around and say, hey, turn this into something, you know, for, well, for production. I, su I suppose, but if I was the kind of personality that's a little more dogged in these things and a little better at handling it, instead of just, like, saying, well, let's do something else, it might have turned out differently, you know. I'm sure there's an encounter group or a, or a, or a you know, psychiatric assessment in there somewhere but either way that's what happened but i think we've all done that and just say he's talking about dan the automator ringing him up i think if an opportunity comes along like the Lemonheads or something this yeah. is gonna well, then you take it yeah you know i mean oh, i really want to write my book but i'm gonna go play with the Lemonheads. right right you know, so I, you... it makes sense <laughs> you know just for the sake of having food on the table as well as yeah, you yeah. know art sure. food is good yeah it is it's fun uh, um and since since we kind of got on this uh my life sort of peripherally went through this as well. Explain to me your uh, uh, your junction with L.A. Chicano rap, which is pretty far outside of what we normally do. Well, I came back from New York, you know, and I had like a lull. I wasn't doing much, and this friend of mine had a studio in Little Canyon, like the last of the you know two-inch tape, the whole thing. Okay. And these Chicano gangster brothers had hired a guy named Big Tone, who was one of Suge Knight's bodyguards to produce their little brother, who was the one who wasn't going to be a gangster. He's a really cool kid. He was a kid then, now he's like, you know, this is about 1999. Okay. So they hired me just to be the tape operator, to actually, you know, old school engineer. And then they would pay this guy Big Tone, you know, in partly in drugs, and he would not show up one day. He'd like, you know, be in a hotel room doing, you know, smoking crack or whatever. So I'd do the work myself. And it was when computers were first starting to really get used a lot, you know? And so I'd say, you know, we really don't need the two inch tape. And I would, the days that I was working alone with another producer were kind of better. So when that project cost the brothers like 50 grand and went nowhere, he called me up and said, look, can you, the brother, the younger one, who was the artist, Mr. D, can you make these records cheaper? And so I started making them in the Gaylord, just all completely in the box. Mm -hmm. And that became Southland Records. And I worked with uh, Mr. D, Sleepy Mallow. I worked a little bit with Caponi, with Frank V from, from, from uh, Proper Dose, that guy. Uh, no, was it Proper? I can't remember, it's been a while now. It was, it was the one local Chicano act that had a, had a deal with Sony. And um, yeah. It was basically it was called Southland Records. They probably still exist. No, I looked them up last night. They still exist. They have a lot of uh, 
big in the reissue market. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, they're still mainly selling. They they that, completely were tied you know, spot. To, to CDs, and you probably won't even find my name on a lot of the of the if you bought the CDs because we were using illegal samples back then. So everybody used fake names. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I've got tons of them at home still. It was I, a lot of fun. And, and to me, that's that was the coolest hip hop because once everybody got kind of busted for all the sample use and started just playing synths and stuff. They lost a little something. Yeah. They lost that DJ element, which I loved. That was like kind of my favorite thing about it. And you were making the beats and everything yourself? Yeah, they would, they would, I would, they would come in and rap and I would just, they, but Mr. D, really a very smart guy, he knew, he, I, my thing was to try and act like I knew more about it than he did while I was learning from him. Because his focus was really tight. He knew hip hop inside and out. These guys, all these Chicanos, they at least this particular bunch of them really love Eazy E, really love NWA, you know, all the all the old school stuff. Sure, which and wasn't that old then. at the time. Well, yeah, and so he would like uh, he'd say, "I want something that sounds like this," or he'd give me a sample, and then I would just take it from there and make the beat, and then mix it and put all the rappers on and sometimes I'd correct them like, if they weren't like some of them because those guys like there'd be one really good rapper but they're all in the same crew so there's gonna be a couple who can't rap you know what I mean and so I'd sit there and work with them on their timing and stuff like that mm -hmm. and then later when, when the transition came like you say when it went into actually playing then I made a whole lot of stuff with them that was like oldies but done Chicano gangster rap style where I'd play all the instruments you know and we'd like make you know ballads and stuff with rap it was kind of fun i'm sure it was yeah. uh i actually done some stuff like that here at uh, the humble tone duff uh, uh studio and it was a lot of fun the downside of it was maybe when uh, a guy you have coming over shows up with a crew did you have that happen a lot where you got 11 guys in the house all the time and there's and there's that's a, a little unnerving there's a desk opinion. you know there's a desk a front desk with a de door person at the gaylord and it'd be like uh i get a phone call uh Kenny, uh, your friends are here. <laughs> it's like, send him up, and he'd be like six guys, you know, Paylon's full shaved heads, super baggy, you know what I mean, the whole bit. But they were all cool guys. There was a couple times when there was some aggro. Yeah. There was one guy who came in to rap named uh, Conejo, named Rabbit. And he was a real hothead, man. He got into a fight with Frank, with Frank, Frank V out in the hallway, and it was kind of trouble. And then about two weeks later, he shot somebody. And so everybody in the Chicano gangster rap world wanted me to, to take little pieces of his rap from that day and put it on their track because now he was like, he's, a he's yeah. on the run. They didn't sure. even catch him. You know what I mean? It was a big deal. So that was a trip. But uh, mainly they were pretty cool, man. They were just, you know. Yeah, I, I know my wife came home one day and there was like 11 rappers strewn about the apartment writing lyrics. Were they writing and, on the little pads? Yeah, yeah, and, and, and <laughs> I was like, you want, one of you guys want to fill out my divorce papers? I think that'll... Uh, That'll go pretty good. Yeah, that's funny. Um, Josh, I, I wanted to also ask you, and I'm sure this is a question that floats by you a lot, but I am sort of intrigued by it. Growing up in, in such a musical family, uh, was there a lot of competition between all the brothers and sisters and, you know, your father overseeing all this just to, like, really... Or was, or was your father more like, eh, you don't necessarily need to get into music? How, how was that at home? Um, I... Uh, I don't remember there being any competition, um, especially when we got older and um, and my sister started a band called That Dog. Sure. And I remember th um, this was in the early 90s, and they would have um, rehearsal in one of my sister's rooms at my mom's house. 
and I would just say, can I sit in the corner while you guys are practicing? I won't bother you. So I would just sit in the corner and listen to what they were doing. And that was really inspiring to me um, to, for putting Spain together in the early days. So I, and you know, Petra, all my sisters have played on Spain stuff, I think, at some point over the years. Mm -hmm. and, you know, especially Petra. So it's always been, it's never been a competitive thing between us. So everybody's more eager to like help each other yeah, out. Yeah. And, and I mean, obviously, did you learn bass from your dad or did he just kind of say, here's a bass, figure it out? Or how did that go? Here's a bass, figure it out. I, I think <laughs> he, he taught me some pointers. Yeah. Um, and he also, he's the reason why, even though I'm left-handed, I play right-handed because he told me that it's that's lucky that you're left-handed because if you play right-handed your your keyboard hand will be stronger than every on the right-handers cuz the right-handers play that on the neck with their left hand sure so that made sense to me and was that um, uh, that was that weird to learn no and also i would maybe you're to, more ambidextrous than you realize maybe i i didn't have to find a left-handed bass to play um, but the, those kinds of things, like just very basic, where to put your, how to hold the neck, where to put your fingers, and how octaves work, and diff the same notes on different places and on the neck, was that was pretty much the extent of of it. Well, so from there, uh, learning how to play, you kind of, uh, certainly you're credited to it when when you came out with Spain you're pretty much looked at as the father of a genre, slowcore. And uh, what were you listening to to make, to make you sort of go in that pretty unique direction? Uh, well... And I, again, that's someone coming up with a thing that, you know, yeah. we all have that. That's whatever. I, I had been coming out of, of a punk band and playing really loud and fast for my teenage years and just getting a little older and wanting to, you know, look at, at, at songwriting in a more mature way. And that was, you know, and also kind of broadening my listening um, palette. Um, so I was listening to a lot of blues, Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker, especially and wanting to and gospel music and wanting to see if I could write songs like that and, and one band I remember it, that came out was the Cowboy Junkies that oh was, sure that was a real early prototype for what I wanted to do when when the Trinity Sessions came out by Cowboy Junkies in 88 I thought I was working at KCRW in the music library uh -huh. and they were like the DJs were flipping out over that record, and I was thought to myself, "That's kind of like what I want to do," and and it's pot and people like it, so that kind of validated sure my ideas back then. Well, Josh, you've just sort of given me the perfect segue because, if we recall, Trinity Sessions were recorded on one microphone. Yeah. So I think we should do uh, your live performance right here on the one U eighty seven and uh, make it sound amazing. <laughs> this is. A song called Battle of Saratoga.
Gentlemen, that was gorgeous. Thanks. Really loved it. Uh, this is going to pop out on August 10th. You were mentioning some shows around town. Do you have anything kind of right after that that we uh, can mention for people to come out and see you guys and scream and faint and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, we are playing every Tuesday night, um, speaking of the Regent Theater, at the Love Bar, the Love Song Bar, sure. which is a bar inside the Regent Theater. Yep. So every Tuesday night in August, we're playing for free at, we start around nine o'clock, so. Great. If you're free on a Tuesday night and uh, want to hear some interesting music and drink some interesting drinks, come on by. All right, I'm, I think a lot of people do that. I know I will. That's uh, fun. Place. And we talked about the Michael Shepard. Uh, yeah. Is that before August 10th? That's July 30th. Ah, uh, well, we've missed that. Uh, anything you want to say about Michael? I know we were talking about him a little bit while he, you're setting up. He was a good friend of mine. I I, uh, I can't remember how we met. I, I just think it's... It, it was probably through one of my sisters. But also being in, in the L.A. music scene, you meet everybody eventually. And um, he was a great promoter of music and of n not only music but music that no one else would champion he would find the music that was incredible that no one else wanted to to promote and or you know usually because it wouldn't make anyone any money but he would want to do it anyways because he loved music more than he yeah, loved money that's and true um, you know, he's the reason I started my own label, pretty much. Um, you know, he introduced me to my distributor, and really, he would like he would say, "Why, why do, why are you waiting for an, a label to put your stuff out? You got to do it yourself." And uh, he was like that with a lot of people. And no, and it definitely was. And I mean, I would like to hope that every decent scene has at least one guy like that to yeah, you know kind of yeah. make sure that you know those special artists don't fall through the cracks just because they're not fitting into the machine quite as efficiently yeah gentlemen it was great having you over i really had fun uh i think this sounded amazing uh likewise thanks yeah, for having you know, talking to you maybe man. we'll do it again i will definitely come out and see you play live and thanks for joining the tone dose sessions thank you Dude. for having us Thank you for listening to the Toned Up Sessions. Please join us next time when we welcome authors and music business experts, Tom Savia and Chris Morris.